But let me just say one more word. I have so enjoyed being your pastor. We feel overwhelmed at the privilege and the responsibility of uh, just being here at Placerita. A lot of times people still ask me all the time, hey, Adam, how's it going at Placerita? And I tell them the same answer now for two years. I just say, hey, you know what? We're living the dream. We're living the dream, man. There's nothing I'd rather be doing. There's no church I'd rather be serving. There's no occupation I'd rather uh, try, to, try to fulfill other than what God's called me to, which for now is to be the pastor here at Placerita Bible Church. And I want to just commend you and say thank you for being a great congregation. We feel your love. We feel your sacrifice. We feel your, lo- your support. Uh, we've just been overwhelmed with the God's goodness. And I think the most exciting thing, sometimes people say, well, what's the best thing going at Placerita? I also always tell them this, you know what? It's our elder team. We are so blessed that we have elders who are godly and unified to work together with Steve Severance. Will always, for the rest of my life, go down as an incredible privilege. And also to be able to work with the lay elders who serve here with Dr. Barrick and the rest of them, it is a just a fantastic opportunity. And, uh, you know, just last week, I think we appointed the two new elders. I, I hope that you see what we're seeing. We're seeing God rebuild a leadership team at our church of men of integrity and of character. And I always tell our elders that as long as we stay humble and we stay unified, God's going to bless this church. No matter what else happens here, whether there's differences in this or that or various preferences, as long as the, the leaders of this church stay committed to Christ and to being led by the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, God's got his hand on this church. And I'm just happy to tell you that I love our elder meetings. I love to sit down. We have an elder meeting this Tuesday night that will go from 6 p.m. till midnight. You know how I know? Because they all go to midnight or a little later. But it's not because we're hammering out hard things and like ripping each other apart. It's because we're laughing. Well, we do more than that at the elder meeting. But all right, it's because, it's because we're praying for you guys. We're taking care of business that God's called us to. And we just enjoy one another. And so we are so privileged uh, to have a team like that, that God has set at a time like this for this church. We are poised for great things in the future of this church. And so we just want to say thank you, Lisa and I do, as a couple, uh, to be able to serve as your pastor. It is a great, great joy. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6. But I've kind of listed it there in the sermon as 1 through 6. Because I'm going to give just a little bit of a review of last week as we dive into this week. The title for this this morning's sermon is Counterfeit Love. Counterfeit Love. Ephesians chapter 5. And I'll just go ahead and read the whole text 1 through 6 as we dive into our time here this morning. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Father, we bow our heads before you solemnly as we consider the seriousness of this very passage. I pray that you would help us understand what it means to be imitators of God and to walk in love, and that we would also beware of the kind of love the world offers, which is a counterfeit compared to the real thing. Enlighten our spirits and allow us to understand this text and to live it out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, perhaps one of the best-known counterfeiters of all time to ever perpetuate flawed is Frank Abagnale. He carried out the most prolific work in his teens and early 20s. Abagnale was the master of forging checks. He also proved adept at slipping through the fingers of several federal agents who pursued him, largely through his ability to move at the drop of a hat. His ability, however, to forge checks and to cultivate a nomadic tendency came together in an impressive criminal statistic. Between the ages of 16 and 21, he cashed more than $2.5 million in fake checks in all 50 states and in 26 countries around the world. The counterfeiter was also a master confidence man fascinated by legitimate careers. When he took an interest in becoming a professional, he simply posed by forging the documents necessary and the diplomas necessary in order to obtain that particular job. In fact, it worked out well for him. He became a teacher, an airline pilot. That's kind of scary. <laughs> though, though he didn't actually fly the plane, he just forged the paychecks from the Pan Am American Airlines. But he also forges being a doctor and even as an attorney, amongst other occupations. It's pretty amazing that he could get by with all of this stuff. But he was eventually caught and arrested in France in year 1969. And he served time in various countries where he had frauded their economic system. Eventually, he was deported back to the United States of America, where he was sentenced to 12 years in a federal prison for multiple accounts of forgery. The name may ring a bell. Abagnale wrote his, of his criminal past in a memoir entitled, Catch Me If You Can. It was made into a film back in 2002. Abagnale apparently had a love for the counterfeit way of life. He worked harder at being who he wasn't instead of just being who he really was. Frank Abagnale was a con artist. He was a fraud. He was a master counterfeiter. And the word counterfeit as a noun is defined as a fraudulent imitation of something else, a forgery. The word counterfeit as a verb means to imitate fraudulently. If you remember from our time together last week, we were challenged to be imitators of God. And what we're going to see this morning is that the world imitates 
that which tries to satisfy as well, as we were called last week to walk in love just as Christ loved us, what we're going to see this week in verses 3 through 6 is that the world has a counterfeit type of love. The world will tempt us and entice us and that we are often tempted by this counterfeit love. In fact, one author writes on this passage of verses 1 through 6 this, quote, Whatever God establishes, Satan will counterfeit. Where God establishes true love, Satan produces counterfeit love. Counterfeit love characterizes Satan's children, those who are of the world, just as true love characterizes God's children, those who are citizens of heaven. According to the Urban Dictionary, counterfeit love is defined as a superficial love Uh, uh, superficial love experiences that may seem real, but in reality are insincere or faint. Illusions that can deter you from finding and sharing real love. The dictionary goes on to say this, it's love that's based on the illusion of of separateness and a fantasy of the beloved. Instead of a real knowledge of self and of the other person, this form of counterfeit love can only be fake. One last comment that it says here is that a relationship of counterfeit love is possessing the opposite qualities of real love. I appreciate what Pastor John MacArthur writes in his commentary here on Ephesians. He says this, In contrast to godly, unselfish, forgiving love, the world's love is lustful and self-indulgent. It loves because the object of love is attractive, enjoyable, pleasant, satisfying, appreciative, loves in return, produces desired feelings, or is likely to repay in some way. It is always based on the person's fulfilling of one's own needs and desires and meeting one's own expectations. The world claims to want love, and love is advocated and praised from every corner. Romantic love especially is touted. Songs, novels, movies, and TV series continually exploit emotional, lustful desire as if it were genuine love, questing for and fantasizing about the perfect love is portrayed as the ultimate human experience. Well, that's the kind of love we're going to read about this morning, that kind of love that is pursued by the world, the kind of love that will never satisfy I'm here to tell you this morning that this kind of worldly love is counterfeit. This kind of worldly love will never satisfy. This kind of worldly love will leave you empty, frustrated, and filled with guilt. This counterfeit love actually takes a lot of hard work and effort to gain something, but it actually has no worth at all. Spending the currency of counterfeit love may buy you a short amount of pleasure, but in the end, it will cost you the rest of eternity in God's penitentiary. This morning, beware of counterfeit love. And I want to examine this passage by giving you three headings that will help us see all that we have to look at in verses one through six. The first heading is simply this. Number one, 
proper actions. I'm wanting you to see these three headings so that you're not deceived, but rather you're delighting in that which truly satisfies, the fragrant love of Christ. And we're called to have the proper actions in verses 1 through 2, which is a little bit of a review of last week. Your first blank there is that we were challenged to imitate God as beloved children. Remember that? Last week we read in verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And we asked the question, how can we possibly imitate God? God is eternal from eternity past. God is all-knowing. God is all-wise and all-powerful and omnibenevolent. He's omnipresent. How in the world are we challenged here to imitate God? Well, last week we talked about at least three things to consider. One, consider the fact you've been created in his image. God created you in his very image to be a replica of what his character is. You are an image bearer. We talked about the Imago Dei, that you, are, you have a soul. An animal cannot imitate God because an animal doesn't have a spirit or a soul. But you, on the other hand, were created in the image of God to imitate him. Secondly, we talked about the fact that as Christians, you've been adopted into his family and you're called his child. So the way that you imitate God partly is the fact that not only are you a person, which just means you have the ability as a sheer person to represent his image, but now you're a Christian. That if you're in Christ and you've repented of your sins, you're able to imitate God by imitating his son, Jesus Christ. And we also talked about another way or reason that you can imitate God is simply this. You've been loved with a transcendent and a transforming love. You're not some redheaded stepchild, right, that's unwanted. Like, the, like Annie, right? The idea is that you're actually wanted by God, you're loved by God, and he transforms you in both your character and in your behavior to look like himself. The idea here is that we're imitating God. Any parent knows what it's like for any child to try to imitate you as a mom or dad. You've seen your kids go into your closet maybe and pull out your shoes, Try to put them on and walk around, pull, pull out your clothes or your, your shirt or your pants and say, look at me, Dad, look at me. And just recently, we've really uh, become fond of the soda fresca. I mean, something about moving back to California, we're just like fresca all the time at the Tyson house. And so that's good and bad. The bad part about it is that our kids are like, hey, Dad, can I have some fresca? And so I know maybe some of you or against giving soda to kids, but sometimes I'm like, hey, sure, go ahead. So they'll, ha they'll have some fresca. So just recently, Zoe has figured this out. She's my two-year-old. And so she's like, fresca? Zozo? Fresca? And I'm like, all right, all right, we'll try it out. So I'll give her a little fresca, and she, she takes a sip. Ah. I'm like, that's pretty fun. Give her another sip. She's like, ah. Ah. And I'm like, why does she keep doing that? Like, then I realized, you know what, that must be what I do. Like, <laughs> get a nice sip of fresca, and I'm like, oh, man, that's so good. So children just imitate their mom and dad. I mean, you know how that is, which I would say, watch out, because there's certain habits I have that I don't want them 
to imitate, right? There's certain words that you realize, I gotta clean out of my whole vocabulary. They may not be, I'm talking about really bad words, but you understand what I mean. You just straighten up everything that you say and everything that you do because you realize your kids are watching you. When, when, when you lose the game at the last part of a close one, you gotta watch out how you respond because your kids are looking at you. In a similar way, we're to imitate God. We're to look to him, and really the only way that's even possible is, is your next blank there, is, is that we're, we're called to walk in love as Christ loved. In other words, we're commanded to be imitators of God. We're also commanded to walk in love. Well, how can we do that? Well, it's because Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ gave up his life so that we could be imitators of God. We're to love others because Christ first loved us. We're to walk in this kind of sacrificial love, which is a fragrant aroma to God. Remember, this isn't the kind of love that's like, I'll love you if you love me back. This is not eros here. This is, this is not even phileo love. This is agape love. This is the kind of love that gives to the unlovely for your betterment. And the idea is that God's called us to walk in that kind of love. And really the only way to have that kind of love is to sacrifice your own personal benefit for the sake of another. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He sacrificed his own life for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's what love is. Love is not about getting. Love is about giving. And we may even be called one day to give our life as ISIS has been beheading and killing murderously innocent men and women and children. Somehow Lisa and I were talking about, my goodness, did you see what happened this week as these other Christians died uh, at the hands of ISIS? And my son, Nate, he's my seven-year-old, picked up on this a little bit. He's like, "What, what are you guys talking about? We said, well, Nate, you need to know that Christians are dying around the globe because they love Jesus. And he just quite couldn't get to understand. Why, why would they kill people just because they love Jesus? Because there's some people who don't love Jesus, and they hate Christ, and they hate people who put their faith in Christ. And Nate was like, well, could that, could that ever happen to us? I'm like, well, yeah, it could happen to us. I mean, there have been people, not only in the Middle East and some other countries, who give their life because they believe in Christ. And I was reminded of the Columbine story that you well know of Cassie, who had the gun put to her head and said, do you believe in God? And so I was telling him a little bit about somebody could put a gun to your head and said, do you believe in God? And he looked at me and said, Daddy, what would you say? And I said, I, I hope I would say yes. And he's like, but if you did that, you would, you would be murdered. And I'm like, well, Nate, I have enough faith and love for God to give my life for him because that's what Jesus did for us. And I looked at him and he said, I could never, I, could, I couldn't do that. And I said, hey, buddy, that's okay. I mean, he's a I mean, young guy, six years old. I don't expect him to just, you know, muster up. You know, I'm, I might wimp out too. Who knows until you're in this situation. And then he just started thinking about it. And he said, no, nah. he said, I, I, I would just tell him no, but I really do believe in God. But I would tell him no like this. I would... <laughs> I would, I would put my hand down here, and I would say, no. No. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, well, if you say no, but you swipe your knee, it means you didn't really mean it. (laughs) 
So, so if ISIS comes to your door, just, you know, no. we'll, tell them, we'll tell them yes, right? Well, hopefully God would give us the ability, right, that, that he would give us the, the, the conviction to stand for God even when it costs you something. And I think that that's something that we need to prepare ourselves for, and it's something that we honestly and all, and all you know, need to prepare our kids for. I mean, we are living in a world where any moment of any day, anything could happen. And we just need to be reminded that's what true love is. True love is being willing to give your life for the gospel's sake. And so my, uh, the idea here is in verses 1 and 2, those are the proper actions that God expects of children. So if you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, this is exactly what God expects of you. He doesn't expect you to be a hypocrite. He doesn't expect you to say, no, I'm not really in all the way. If you're a Christian, he says, all the way, I want you to imitate me. I want you to walk in this kind of love, and I want you to be willing to give your very life. And if that's not where you are this morning, you need to reconsider what you call Christianity. Those are the proper actions that God commands of us. But secondly, notice this, your major heading number two, there are improper actions that began to try to seduce us into a different type of love that the world offers. And so we could say it this way, your next blank, do not participate in immoral conduct. And then under there, we see that first subpoint. we're talking here about things like sexual immorality. Notice verse three, it says, but... That's where the contrast comes in. So here's the godly kind of love, verses 1 and 2, that we've been talking about. Here's ungodly love, verses 3 and 4. So he's saying, hey, be like this, but don't be like this. What are we not to be like? Don't pursue or be involved in sexual immorality. Now, the word for sexual immorality is porneia. It's the word where we get our English word pornography from. The idea behind this word porneia is it refers to any kind of sexual conduct outside of a God-honoring marriage between a man and a woman. That's how the Bible describes porneia, any form of sexual conduct outside of the God-honoring marriage of a man and a woman. This word has been used in the Bible to refer to the type of extramarital relationships such as prostitution, harlotry, fornication, and homosexuality. It could be any of those sins is classified here as sexual immorality. In fact, let's look at a couple places where it's used in the New Testament. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. In verse 32, here we see Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's giving what we call biblical grounds for divorce. Okay, the idea is that marriage is supposed to be lifelong, but Jesus gives one possible ground for divorce, and Paul mentions another one in 1 Corinthians 7.15. But look at what Jesus says here, Matthew 5.32, but I say uh, to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Just wanted you to see, Jesus uses this word porneia and says if somebody commits porneia, if somebody here, it's understood, has some type of sexual conduct outside of marriage, then it's possible that that marriage could end in a divorce. Let's look at another usage of the word, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, this is where Paul is addressing the church in Corinth and he's giving a corrective to the church of things they're doing that's just simply not right. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, he writes this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And so here there's some type of sexual perversion in the family where apparently this man had his father's wife. Many believe that to be some kind of relationship with the stepmom. So the idea here is it's just simply not right. It's a gross perversion. The Bible calls it sexual immorality. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, or chapter 2 rather. Revelation chapter 2 here after, after Jesus is giving this revelation to John who's writing it and recording it on the Isle of Patmos to these seven churches in modern-day Turkey. He wants them to address each one of these churches. And after addressing the church of Ephesus and the church of Smyrna and the church of Pergamum, then Jesus addresses this fourth church of Thyatira. And he's got some pretty serious words for this church. As with each church, he kind of talks about, here's where you're doing good, here's where you're struggling, here's what you need to do to to fix it. And so looking at Revelation 2.20, Jesus says, but I have this against you. So those are chilling words, right? It's like Jesus is talking, encouraging, clarifying, and then he says, but I have this against you. That means listen up. What does he have against the church of Thyatira? That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice, here's our word, sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice to idols. Apparently, the church of Thyatira had allowed a woman prophetess to come into their midst by the name of Jezebel. Some people talk about whether that was her real name or just kind of a figure describing the Old Testament woman who married Ahab and was a worshiper of Baal and an evil woman. Certainly, this woman Jezebel in the New Testament was just as wicked, if not more so, than the Jezebel of the Old Testament. This was Jezebel. She was a devil with a blue dress on. All right, this is a bad woman. Look what she's doing. She's seducing Christ's servants to practice sexual immorality. We're reminded here, this isn't just like the sexual immorality going on outside of the church. Not like, oh, well, just the people in the world, they really struggle with sexual immorality, but everybody in the church, they're all pure. They're all nice. They never, they never struggle. They, they're never tempted. That's not true because this church is being attacked and they weren't doing anything about it. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. After addressing this church, we see here the seriousness of Christ's words about sexual immorality. Divine judgment was about to fall not only on Jezebel, but on all those who committed adultery with her. Steve Lawson writes on this text, quote, this Jezebel-like woman had been conducting her business in bed. Apparently, she had been seducing her disciples. 
There was a, a group in the church that was continually engaged in adultery with her. Close quote. We've got to stand guard, church. We've got to realize that in this day and time that we live, this kind of sin still happens in the church. In fact, I would tell you this. The most surprising thing I've faced as a pastor is the amount of sexual sin within the church. Unbelievable. The kind of things I have personally had to deal with and counsel with when I was an intern at Grace Community, when I was a youth pastor at Lakeside, and even in the last two years as uh, pastor here would blow your mind. Now, I don't say that to scare you. I'm just giving you a little reality check. People struggle with sexual immorality. And if you're in this room, then you may be playing with fire. And the idea is, is this must be put off from the church of Thyatira and from the church of Placerita. God has called us to purity and to holiness. And I'm telling you that this particular sin is rampant in the culture and has made its way into the church. All sexual immorality has a payday someday. Every kick has a kickback. And if you're flirting with this particular sin, get ready for disaster. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Not only will Jezebel be thrown into the fires of hell to suffer forever, but so will those who slept with her unless they repent of their deeds. You say, Adam, you're getting pretty hardcore. That's because Somebody in this room at this moment might be flirting with the idea of messing around with your secretary. Somebody in this room at this moment has already played out a fantasy in their mind about being with somebody else. And I'm trying to call you off the fence and to warn you as your pastor of the consequences of that kind of sin if you just dive in. I've seen more people leave the church over this sin than any other. Denounce the faith wreck their marriage, abandon their family for this sin. So we've got to stand on guard, church. We've got to be aware it's a fake kind of love. It's not real. It doesn't satisfy. Don't get stuck in sexual immorality. I've got good news for you today, though. It's time to repent. All of these judgments are all about if they don't repent. If they don't repent, guess what? It's not too late to repent. No matter where you are, No matter what you're dabbling around with, you can repent. God will grace you and pull you back close to himself. Thank God for 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's always a way out. You just got to want the way out more than you want to stay in. And that's exactly the problem for some is they know there's a way out, but they just like it so much. And let me encourage you that it's a counterfeit love. It's someday you'll get caught and it will never be worth it. Well, not only is there this word of sexual immorality, but number two, there's all impurity. All impurity. This word impurity indicates the general defilement of the whole personality. 
This is further expressed by the word all. Notice it says again that we've got to do away not only with sexual immorality, but all impurity. Uh, this is the idea of, of, of not just a little bit, but any or all forms of impurity must be totally avoided at all costs. This word can refer to anything that is unclean or filthy because it is so often associated with the word sexual immorality or porneia. It is a, in, in those frequent contexts of, of a sexual discussion. In fact, 10 out of 11 times when this word is used, it's referring to sexual sin. Impurity refers to sexual thoughts, passions, ideas, fantasies, and every other form of sexual corruption. Certainly this word refers to any impure picture, magazine, website, movie, or advertisement that is trying to lure people in to view only to expose indecency and to feed the fires of passion. God's word says we're to avoid that. We're to look the other way. We're not to ever go down that path. We've already been reminded of this word impurity in the last chapter of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's describing an unbeliever. That's describing a Gentile who has not yet been enlightened by the gospel. And so we're told not to be that way. Not only are we not to be like that Gentile practicing every type of impurity. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 27. You see the word here, impurity, is translated as uncleanliness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all impurity. Or your translation may say uncleanliness, right? The idea of uncleanness. That's what it means. It's like on the outside, it all looks good. You're all white and beautiful. On the inside, there's an evilness there of decaying dead bones. It's impure. In fact, it's interesting. Just this week, I was reading John in my own personal quiet time. And you remember the uh, story about the woman caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus brings her, or the Pharisees rather, bring her, throw her at Christ's feet and say, well, Moses says we're to stone such a woman. What do you say? You remember what he said? Let him who is without sin throw the first stone, right? Well, every time I've ever read that, I've just thought, well, I mean, Obviously, we're all sinners, so we have no business ever casting a rock at somebody else because I'm a sinner, so I could never throw a stone. In fact, the only person that could have stoned her was Jesus. He was perfect. He had never sinned. He could have rightly condemned her to her death, but he chose to have mercy. But this is what I learned. Some commentaries say that the verse that says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, that in some of the Old Testament passages, it's referring to the idea of let him who is without the same sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Which if that's true, that it means that those very Pharisees and scribes had committed the same sin. I mean, they weren't really concerned about her sin anyway. All they did, they wanted to just catch Jesus into some kind of a legal battle and accuse him of not being a good, a good Jew. That's all, they, that's all they care about. They don't really care about the fact she's in an adultery uh, because it could be that they were in adultery. 
In fact, my pastor used to say, again, this is speculation, all right, but when I was growing up, my pastor would say, you know what Jesus was writing in, in the dirt? He, he was writing the sense of those Pharisees and what they had done. He might have even been writing the names of people in the dirt that they had been with. It's pretty, pretty convicting to think about, but the idea simply is this, back to the main point here, right, is that impurity is to not be named among us. We are not to be hypocritical. We're not to be those who act like we've got it all together, where you've got some secret sin in your life. In fact, turn with me to one more place where impurity is used, Romans one twenty four. Romans one twenty four. therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, again, this is a wider category, any type of impurity, dishonoring your body among yourself. These are things that God says, don't be this way. No sexual immorality, no impurity. And number three, moving on to your next blank, is no covet- covetousness. Okay, the idea of thou shalt not covet. Right? What, what we originally think of this word is meaning not coveting for money or other people's possessions. Here in this context, obviously, it's talking about this lust for t- some type of sensual desire. It's the insatiable greed to satisfy one's sexual appetite outside of the bounds of a God-honoring marriage. It, it's like he's saying sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. These three things go together. I mean, look again at 419 which he's already listed these things. He says, again, they have come, become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's the word greedy and impurity together. Again, the idea of greedy or being covetous is the idea of wanting something God says you're not to have. Or look with me, if you will, at Colossians 3, 5. Parallel passage to Ephesians 4. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So the idea, that, that's idolatry, it says at the end of the verse. And so he's telling us, we've got to put that aside. These are all connected. It's wanting something that you can't have, that you don't even need, that you think is love, but it's not love because it's a counterfeit love. Or the same word, again, used in Second Peter 2.14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have their hearts trained in greed, accursed children. He's talking about unbelievers who have been trained in this type of covetous behavior. They're trained in their greed. Where does it come from? It comes from an evil heart. It comes from a wicked nature to want that which God forbids. Why do we want it so bad? Because we think it satisfies. We think that somehow if I just had a little bit more, I would be way better, which is exactly why the Old Testament connects these two sins of sexual immorality and coveting in the giving of the 10th commandment. In Exodus twenty seventeen. you shall not covet, what? Your neighbor's house and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant. These two sins go together. And so it's not as if he's talking about two sexual sins and then just something else, but he's keeping it in the same vein. All of these things should not even be named among Christians. 
I mean, I think it goes without saying that they should ever be, be named as having been committed by true believers, but they should not even be discussed in any way that may lessen their sinful uh, their, and shameful character. So at the end of verse 4, he says, uh, or at the end of verse 3, he says, these must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. In other words, Christians shouldn't even be talking about this. You shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be talking about it. In fact, the only time where it'd be appropriate might be preaching a sermon like this, where we have to address what the text addresses. Maybe in a, in a counseling office where a pastor or elder is dealing with exactly what happened so that we can pursue genuine repentance and restoration. Other than that, doesn't need to be talked about. We're not to be involving that in our conversation as if it's a normal way of life. It's just better. It's not even proper. It's just not fitting. The topic is off limits for any type of detail in the culture of Christian conversations and interactions. I mean, not only are Christians to not participate in immoral conduct, we see here in verse 4 that they're not to participate in immoral conversations Either, And that kind of leads us to B, or your next blank there, do not participate in immoral conversations. Verse 4 fans this out a little bit more, saying, let there be no foolishness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So these three words, these three words of of, uh, filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking are only found here in the entire New Testament. The first word, no filthiness. What he says, it's not only about your conduct, it's about your conversation. This word filthiness refers to dirty stories, suggestive jokes with sexual coloring and all forms of obscenity and indecency. The word carries also the meaning of shamefulness. You know how it is. You're around at work by the water cooler. You're playing ball and you're in the locker room and guys start telling stories that are filthy. It's not right to participate in it at all. This is filthy talk. Or look at the second word. It says no foolish talk either, nor foolish talk. This word, uh, this means empty conversation. The word foolish is actually derived from the word moros, which is where we get our English word moron from. In other words, you're a moron if you talk like this. You have no business talking about this. It means dull or stupid or useless conversation. It sometimes is referred to as foolish talk that comes from the drunk man. You ever seen a drunk person who's just uttering and stuttering and saying things, and you're like, man, what are you even talking about? That's this kind of word. That's this, this, this kind of foolish talk. It's somebody with a gutter mouth. It's just filthy and nasty. I know you guys may not have a lot of gutters here, but in Texas, we had a gutter went around, or, we, or, or you may have gutters here, but you don't have to clean them. That's what I'm thinking. At home, we had gutters filled with pine straw and, and uh, leaves, and you go up there to clean that stuff out a couple times a year, and I'm talking nasty. I'm talking about you get your hand down there, and you're like, oh, this is, this, is, this is filthy, right? This is the idea of what kind of mouth some people have. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. You got somebody with you like that at work? They just open their mouth and it just starts coming out. And you're just like, oh man, it's a difficult place sometimes. But you got to be better than that. And that moves us to number three, no crude joking. No crude joking. This means jokes or talk with unsavory hidden meanings. 
what's meant here. There's some kind of hidden meaning. Oftentimes, this includes sexual innuendos and vulgar suggestions. This, this is to talk about something or to joke about something indecent, to make it a game. Some commentators call this an immoral wit. It's the idea that you're talking, even on talk show shows or late night uh, shows, you know, uh, that, that they're talking, all of a sudden the conversation gets twisted, and all of a sudden there's all this stuff that's offered out there. If you're not careful, you find yourself laughing at it. I've certainly been in context where some dirty joke or something was told, and I, initially I laugh. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's happened recently, but certainly when I was in high school, I'd be like, ah, oh, man, I shouldn't be laughing at that. Like, that was funny, but that's not really funny. You know, that's not funny. I mean, we're talking about serious sin. I love what Warren Wiersbe says here. He says there's two indications of a man's character. Number one, it's what makes him laugh. Number two, what makes him weep. And the problem is we're laughing at stuff that we ought to be weeping about. And too many other times we're weeping at stuff that we could be laughing at. Say, hey, God's going to take care of that. I'm not going to worry about it too much. But if you're weeping and laughing at the wrong thing, it may show that your character is not one who's truly trusting in God, desiring to honor God. This doesn't mean, of course, we can't have good, clean humor. I mean, I'm all about some good, clean humor, and there's funny stories to tell. I mean, even Proverbs 17.22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine, So it's not like we have to be all somber all the time, but we are called to be pure. It's dangerous to joke about sin. Instead of using your tongue for such unworthy and unbecoming talk, use your tongue deliberately and in a way that would express your thankfulness to God. That's what the end of verse 4 talks about, right? This kind of joking is just like that kind of sin shouldn't be named among you. This kind of joking is it's out of place. But instead, here's your put on, if you will. We've been kind of in this vein of putting off, putting on, right? Here's the put on, put on Thanksgiving. That's what he says. You, you ought not to be putting out that kind of talk. That's filth. But instead, you should just be thankful about everything. You should be thankful for your wife. You should be thankful for whatever you have. Whether you're single are married, or a husband, or a wife. We're just thankful. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Are you thankful? Or do you get caught sometimes thinking, if I just had a little of this or that, somehow life would seem to make sense? No, you've got all you need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 